Welcome back. What did the Old Testament teach about our enemies? Did the Old Testament say anywhere, hate your enemy? No. Did it say love your neighbor? Yes. We have the right to react in indignation when God is dishonored, but not to react in retaliation over personal injury. There is a place for zeal for the holiness of God and the sacredness of his truth and his person. And the Old Testament will tolerate that, but it will not tolerate any kind of evil attack, any kind of bitterness or anger or resentment or hostility towards someone who brings against us a personal injury. We have no place for personal hatred out of pride or prejudice, no matter what has been done to us. Let's explore what God's revelation says in this podcast about loving our enemies. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. I invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. This is such a key passage, so filled with truth and importance for our lives. I believe God has some very special and important things to say to us to me through this follow as i read you have heard it you have heard that it hath been said thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy but i say unto you love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the children of your father who is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do you not even do not even the tax collectors the same? And if you greet your brethren only, only, what do you more than others? Do not even the heathen so? Be ye therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect as you know if you've been listening for any time matthew presents jesus as king each of the gospel focuses on a different element of the life of christ a different facet of his very character the king of the universe the monarch of the earth the king of israel the anointed of god and matthew is writing to a jewish audience primarily because he wants them to realize that the very Jesus of Nazareth, whom they rejected, is none other than their Messiah, the one to whom they said, we will not have this man to reign over us, is none other than the anointed king. Matthew's purpose then is in all of the passages and chapters and verses of his gospel is to present the kingliness of Christ. In the first five chapters, he began by discussing his royal bath, coming at the end of a royal lineage. He discussed his adoration by Persian kingmakers known as the Magi, who recognized this one as king. He talked about his baptism, in which God approved of him as the anointed one. He said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew presents his defeat over the reigning monarch of the earth, Satan, 
as Satan comes three times against Christ and all three times he is defeated and finally vanquished. We see his kingliness and his miracle power as he has power over the physical world to heal, to raise the dead, to give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, voices to the dumb and feet to the lame. And all of these things are Matthew's effort to present the majesty of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, he presents the standards of the king's kingdom, the master's manifesto. If he's a king, then what are the rules of his kingdom? What is the manifesto of the monarch? What are the standards by which those in his kingdom live? And we have the incomparable sermon on the mount presenting those very standards. And the key note that I want you to remember all through this is that the standard of the kingdom of Christ are not the standards of the world. In fact, Jesus sets them in contrast with the system of his day. He shows how inferior Judaism is to the true standards of his kingdom. And we've already talked about the fact that the Jewish people have taken the divine standards of God and lowered them to their own level. And then, by keeping their substandard rules, identify themselves as righteous, which with a righteousness they themselves had invented. In other words, they lowered the standard and accommodated themselves to it. Jesus comes and lifts it back again. He doesn't change the Old Testament. He doesn't set it aside. He reaffirms it and says, your standard is here. God's standard is up there. In our study of chapter 5, we have seen how he has done that. And he's done it by a series of six contrasts. He contrasted, first of all, in verse 21, and following their view of murder with his, then their view of adultery with his, their view of divorce with his, their view of swearing with his, their view of retaliation with his, and finally, their view of love with his. And here we have, we are at the apex because the Apostle Paul was exactly right under the inspiration of the Spirit when he said the greatest thing is love. And Jesus saves for the ultimate, for the ultimate contrast. He saves this for the ultimate contrast. Jesus saves this for the final statement that the epitome of the disparity between the standards of his kingdom and the standards of his day can be seen in the difference between the nature of loves of the two. This is the final contrast. Verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. You see there the disparity between a low-level substandard religious ethic and that which is God's. Now, as we've studied the texts all through Matthew 5, from verse 21 on, we have simply stated there, there are three features in each that are the major thrusts. The Jewish viewpoint, the Old Testament viewpoint, and the viewpoint of Jesus. Jesus in the sermon kept repeating to the Pharisees and scribes and those who agreed with the system 
that their system, no matter how intellectually convinced they were, the system was inadequate to redeem. He reiterated, they were not God's people. They didn't meet the standard, you are sinners. And consequently, he offered himself as the savior, knowing full well that no one comes to a savior that he does not know he needs. And so really, the message was and is about sin. They thought that because they didn't murder, they weren't sinful. They thought that because they didn't commit adultery under their definition, they weren't sinful. They thought because they divorced and made sure they did not did the paperwork, they weren't sinful. They thought that because when they swore by the, by the name of God, they kept their word, they were okay. And they thought because they retaliated equivalently that they were all right. But Jesus says, you've missed the point. If you hate somebody, that's as good as murder. If you look on somebody lustfully, that's the same as adultery. If you divorce for non-biblical grounds, that's evil. And if you don't keep your word, no matter what you swear by, you've sinned. And so he undercuts their whole security. And here he says, you think you love, and what you love is everybody in your little group that agrees with you. And then you have license to hate everybody else. And you've not and you are not even willing to love the ones you love the way you love yourself, which leaves room for yourself indulgent pride pride. That's the Jewish tradition. Now we move from that to the second point that we are looking at, and that's the teaching of the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament teach? Did the Old Testament say anywhere hate your enemy? No. Did it say love your neighbor? Yes. We kind of got started in the last podcast. Let me just remind you of this. There's a statement in the Psalms, Psalm 139, where Jesus says, where David says, I hated them with a perfect hatred. That is the only justifiable hatred in the Bible. That is the only justifiable reaction to an enemy in the Bible. And it is based upon the same heart attitude, the same mentality as Psalm 69, 9, where David says, the reproaches that have fallen on you have fallen on me. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. For example, the Bible says it is wrong to be angry, but there is such a thing as righteous indignation. True? Jesus said, we are not to be angry with another. And yet Jesus made a whip. What's the difference? Jesus never got angry with people who personally offended him. But Jesus got angry with those who defiled the glory of God. We have the right to react in indignation when God is dishonored. But not the right not to react in retaliation over personal injury. Now the same thing is true in regard to this kind of thing with our enemies, with hatred. We should have a perfect or a righteous hatred for those who are the enemies of God. And David said, I hate them with a perfect hatred. And right after that, do you remember what he said? And God, he said, search my heart, try me and know me. Know my thoughts, that there is no wicked way in me. In other words, God, I hate them with a perfect hatred. And if you search my heart, 
you will know that my motive is your glory, not my own personal injury. There is a place for that. There is a place for zeal for the holiness of God and the sacredness of his truth and his person. And the Old Testament will tolerate that, but it will not tolerate any kind of evil attack, any kind of bitterness or anger or resentment or hostility towards someone who brings against us a personal injury. We have no place for personal hatred out of pride or prejudice, no matter what has been done to us. You see, the Jews defined neighbor in a very narrow way, and the Bible defined it in a very big way. The word neighbor is the issue. The Jews said neighbor is the one who believes the way we believe. And you remember I told you how they cursed the rabble mob who didn't know the law and they despised the ignorant ignorant Galileans who were they from that who who were they from that isolated place it was just their little group but hate but hate your enemy never came from God's truth in the old testament they put as an accommodation to their pride and prejudice what did the Old Testament really teach about loving your neighbor? How broad is that term? Let me show you. Look with me at um, Deuteronomy. We're going to spend a few minutes in the Old Testament because I want you to see that God hasn't changed his perspective. Deuteronomy 22. Here we're dealing with some of the Levitical law, some of the codes for Israel's behavior. And this is a very practical and simple one. Thou shalt not see thy neighbor's ox or thy or his sheep go astray and withhold thy help from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again to thy brother. In other words, if your brother has an animal that gets loose and goes astray, you want to immediately come to assist. The point being, you meet another person's need. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 22. If your brother be not near unto thee, or if you know him not, you shall bring it then to your house, and it shall be with thee, thee until thy brother seek it, seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. Let's say you find a stray couple of sheep or an ox somewhere, and you really don't know to whom it belongs at all. You should take it, feed it, care for it as long as it's necessary be sure you do that until the person comes and says he has lost something or has lost an ox and then you take them and give them back the verse continues in like manner thou shalt do with his ass and so shalt thou do with his raiment if he loses his cloak and with every lost thing of thy brother's which he hath lost and thou hast found. That's a general principle about lost and found. Verse 4. Thou shalt not see thy, thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and withhold them thy help from them. Thou shalt surely help them to lift them up again. Sometimes the burden will become heavy. The animal will become tired and he'll just fall down. Well, one fellow would have a little tough time getting that animal back up again. And so you are to come to his help. Now you say, well, 
what does this have to do with anything? Well, it's talking about your brother here. Let's go to Exodus 23 and we go even early in the writing of Moses and we see the same principle in Exodus 23 verse 4. Only this time it takes on a completely different identification. If thou meet thine enemy's ox, if thou meet thine enemy's ox uh, or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Notice, same exact principle as Deuteronomy 22 used, only Deuteronomy 22 used what term for the individual? Brother. How big a term is brother? How big a term is it? The syllogism of his of this simply says that brother has to include what your enemy that's the point verse 5 if thou see the ass of him that hated thee lying under its burden and wouldn't forbear to help him thou shalt surely help him with him somebody who hates you and his animal falls down the normal reaction is serves you right buddy Hope your animal dies and you've got to put the whole load on your wife. <laughs> you know that's retaliatory spirit. He says, no, you go and help, even if it's your enemy. In other words, the standard never changes. The term brother is big enough to include whoever happens to have a need. That is the point. That's where we determine the meaning of neighbor. Neighbor is as big as need. That's all. And when the Bible says love your neighbor, it simply widens up the whole thing. As Psalms tells us, the commandment of God is very broad to encompass anybody who has a need, no matter how they feel about you. That's the issue. And we are not talking about nation against nation in war, we are not talking about criminal justice process. We are talking about day-to-day -day routine of human relationships. Let's look further. Job 31 verse 29. And Job has some people telling him that he's a sinner. He has some diseases, some problems in his life. And he, he is really being used by God as an illustration. He hasn't really done any sinful thing to bring this upon him. But all his counselors think he has. And so they are forever telling him that he's a sinner. And Job starts to muse and respond a, a little bit to this issue. And one of the things that he says is in Job 31 verse 29. He's trying to tell them that he really hasn't done some sin to deserve this. He says, and here's his illustration, if I rejoiced, at the destruction of him that hated me or lift up myself when evil found him. Job says, I didn't do that or I would have sinned. Neither have I suffered. Verse 30, my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. That's incredible. I've never allowed my mouth any evil thought towards someone and do we do that we do that a lot with our epithets 
and our curses and our condemnations. Job says, I didn't do that. I never rejoiced when they fell into calamity. I never wished them evil. Verse 31. If the men of my tent said not, oh, that we, ha we had of his flesh, we cannot be satisfied. In other words, we've never longed for the flesh of an enemy. We've never been dissatisfied enough to want more injury or harm to come to someone. No. You see, the attitude of Job, and by the way, Job was in the patriarchal period. So this really takes you back, clear back to the earliest years of God's dealing with man. And the attitude from that very start was one of love and forgiveness, not wishing evil, even on an enemy. Let's go to Psalm chapter 7, verse 3. David, in a sense, is praying a similar prayer. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him who was at peace with me, in other words, if I was unkind to a friend, he goes on, Yea, I have delivered him who without cause is my enemy. In other words, if I have sinned by being evil to one who was good, or if I have sinned by, by being evil to one who was evil to me, David, notice David pinpoints two things. It's wrong to, to be evil towards those that are good to you. It's even wrong to be evil towards those that are evil to you. So he goes on, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Let him tread down my life on the earth and lay my honor in dust. He's justifying himself to God. And here he's saying, God, I've looked at my heart and I have never given back evil for good. And I have not given back evil for evil either. This is the Old Testament. The Old Testament never justifies hating an enemy. That's a sin. Jesus, Job recognized it as a sin, and so did David. In the 35th Psalm, so that you'll understand further what God's heart is on this, verse 12, David says of his enemies, They rewarded me evil for good when the spoiling for the spoiling of my soul. When they were but as for me, when they were sick, my, clo my clothing was sackcloth. Now, what does sackcloth speak of? It spoke of remorse and sorrow and mourning. When a Jew put on sackcloth and ashes, he is in mourning. He says, when I was good to them, they were cruel to me. But when evil befell, fell upon them, I mourned over them. My heart broke over them. That is the spirit of Jesus who hangs on the cross and looks at those who spat on him and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is the heart of Stephen who lays beneath the bloody stones that are crushing the life out of his body and cries out to God, lay not this sin to their charge. This is the magnanimous unbelievable, inhuman, supernatural forgiveness that comes here from the heart of David, who has been given evil for good, and yet, 
when his enemies suffer, his clothing is sackcloth. And he says, I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer returned into my own bosom. In other words, David says, I fasted and I mourned and I prayed for my enemies when they fell into calamity. Verse 14, I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. Did you notice that? And here David brings together in our thoughts Deuteronomy 22 and Exodus 23. And he says, my enemy is my brother. My enemy is to be my friend, at least in that sense. I bow down heavily as one who mourneth for his mother. I tell you something, people. When a man can weep over his enemy like he weeps over his mother in calamity, he has learned a dimension of love that is far beyond the human level. And that's the teaching of the Old Testament. Verse 15. In my adversity, they rejoice and they gather to get themselves together. They had a party. They tore at me and they ceased not. And they gnashed upon me with their teeth. But that was never my heart towards them. Proverbs 17.5. Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 24, 29. Say not, say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. Proverbs 25, 21. Listen carefully. Very simple and very profound. If mine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Can I say this to you? Your enemy is your neighbor. That's what the Old Testament teaches. Your enemy, is a, in a human sense, is your brother. Not in a spiritual sense. In a human sense, is your brother. Maybe you need for that illustrations let's go to um abraham let's go to genesis and uh watch abraham and see the virtue of the man genesis chapter 13 verse 8 and abraham said unto lot let there be no strife i pray thee between me and thee and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are brethren is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go right. If thou depart to the right, I will go left. That's an amazing reaction. Abraham ended, Abraham, or Abraham ended the fight right there because he said to Lot, you take whatever you want and I'll just take whatever is left. You pick out the best and you take it. That's how you treat an enemy. Give them the very best that there is. Now, we could talk a lot about the stupidity of Lot, pitching his tent towards Sodom and how it eventually got closer and closer until he was in Sodom. And finally, he was out of Sodom and Lot's wife was a pillar of salt. But the point that I want you to see here is the fact that Abraham treated an enemy as the Bible would want us to treat one. He loved him as he loved himself. Instead of seeking the land for himself, he 
he sought the best for his enemy. The Bible honors that kind of virtue. First Samuel 24 offers another illustration. David. When um, Saul was after him to kill him. What was David's reaction in the wilderness of Enengi? Engedi? When Saul came to look for him and was in a cave to cover his feet. We know that means to ease himself. The men of David said to him, Behold, the day of the Lord, the day of which the Lord said, has happened. So David rose, instead of killing him, cut off his skirt behind his back. And even that, David felt guilt and went to present himself before Saul and cried to Saul, saying, my lord the king can you imagine the jolt that must have been to Saul and when Saul looked behind him David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself amazing he paid homage to his evil enemy and David was a godly man as Abraham virtue behaves towards an enemy as we would behave towards a friend because an enemy is our neighbor. David showed the same type of love for his enemies in a way he loved Absalom and Abisha. You can read that by yourself. David heart, David's heart was right. At that moment, he loved with the love the Old Testament taught. The Jews were dead wrong in Jesus' day. The Old Testament didn't teach to hate your enemy. That was their evil, prideful prejudice teaching that. Neighbor encompassed even an enemy. Go back with me um, to chapter 5 verse 10 of Matthew. And it says, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of all, all, all manner of evil against you, falsely for my sake. How should you react? Verse 12. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Maybe you've got conflict in your marriage. Maybe you've got conflict in your family between the children and the parents. Maybe you have conflict on the job. Maybe you have enemies at home and you have enemies at work. And people who speak against you, maybe a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law or a brother or a sister, another part of your family speak evil of you or of your children. And it's so easy in our human world to get these things going and these enemies. And we become bitter. We begin to be hostile instead of reaching out in love to the people, instead of seeing them as our brother and our neighbor, as the Old Testament does. We begin to see them as an enemy and we miss the point of what Jesus says and we fall to the low level of the Pharisees, the Pharisaic religion. That's not to be. So the Old Testament was very clear. Jesus is in absolute agreement with it. This is a far cry from the prayer points we have in our Nigerian churches about their enemies. 
these prayers point in some these prayer points in some Nigerian churches is in error and against God's word. Brother, sister, beware of false teaching by false prophets. Can I introduce the teaching of Jesus to you in verse 44? And I'll just introduce it today and we'll go into it next podcast. We saw the tradition of the Jews in verse 43. We saw the teaching or we are seeing the old the teaching of the Old Testament implied in, in behind verse 43, but perverted. And now the teaching and the truth of Jesus himself. This is the Lord's corrective to the error of the Jewish system. This is the Lord's corrective to the, to the error in the Nigerian system. And whichever church prays against their enemies, or whichever individual prays against their enemies, he gives five principles to correct that faulty love of the Pharisees and the scribes. Five short statements, sequential statements that ascend to the very highest statement of all. They have a beautiful flow in ascent and we'll see that next podcast. He says five things. Let me give them to you. Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Manifest your sonship. Exceed your fellow men. Imitate your God. I'll repeat that. Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, manifest your sonship, exceed your fellow men, and imitate your God. People, when we finally ascend into the fifth principle, you are going to see perhaps in a way you've never seen before what Jesus meant when he said you are to love your enemies. It is the most powerful statement, I believe, in the New Testament above the meaning about the meaning of love. We'll just take that first statement, love your enemies. Jesus speaks with authority here. He is the Lord of the law. He is the Son of God. And Jesus says by using the emphatic pronoun, is intensifying the fact that he speaks authoritatively. I say to you, setting himself up as one who can speak over against their system, no matter who their teachers have been. No matter how long a list of renowned, well-meaning and well-known and astute rabbis or teachers they have been, I say to you. And the idea we learn from the Old Testament is that your enemy is your neighbor. Your enemy is your neighbor. We also know the story of the um, um, Samaritan that displays critically what who a neighbor is when in Luke verse 10 um, chapter 10 verse 25 a lawyer came to Jesus he said what do I do to inherit eternal life what is written in the law Jesus answered and he said thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul with all thy strength with all thy mind with and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself who is my neighbor who is it a certain man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho on his way to Jericho and it was a dangerous road robbers and highway along it by chance there came down a certain priest that way sorry and this man fell down among thieves who stripped him of his raiment, wounded him and departed, leaving him dead. By chance there, there came 
down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. He was followed a little later by a Levite, one who was of a great heritage of the Levitical priest as well. And when he was at the place, he came and looked on him and passed on the other side. Can you imagine the Jew? Wouldn't even enter a, 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 a Gentile house. Anyway, we go on. And he went, verse 34, by this time, the um, Samaritan comes in and sees this man. He takes him, pours oil on his wounds, set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took him out of, took out a, to deny, a dinara and gave it to the host and said, take care of him. Whatever thou spend more, when I come again, I will repay you. A Gentile. A Samaritan who was an outcast to the Jew was, mag was magnanimous. He got involved. He bound up his wounds. He loved a Jew and cared for him, his enemy. Put him on his beast and led the beast to the inn. You want to know something, people? Your neighbor is anyone who needs you. That's it. Anyone in my path with a need constitute my neighbor not because they believe what i believe or think what i think or belong to my group god loved us when we were enemies and he died for us and it's that very love that we are to have for others i'll close with this story in the year 1567 king philip ii of spain sent the Duke of Alva. The Duke of Alva was notorious for his bitter hatred of everyone who embraced Reformed Christianity. It was the time of the Reformation and people were turning from, Catholic, from Catholicism to Biblical Christianity and believing in Christ in a proper way. And they hated these people. In fact, the time of the Duke of Alva was known as the Reign of Terror in Spain. And the council of the Alva was called the Blood Council because they slaughtered so many people who embraced the Reformed faith. But the historians tell us about one man, a man named Dirk Willemson, who became a Christian, a Protestant Christian, and thus was condemned to death in a tortuous manner. Somehow he made an escape and he began to run for his life. It was near the end of winter and there was still some patches of snow on the ground. And as he ran and ran, he finally came to the inevitable, a lake. The lake was frozen, but not frozen very hard because winter was nearly over. And yet, he had no choice because he was being chased by one lone soldier. And so he decided he'd run across the lake. And the historian says that as he ran, the lake, the lake ice began to crack and creak and shake under his feet as he pounded across. But he didn't stop because he wanted to avoid the terrible death that awaited him if he were caught. He stretched his legs further and further in his strides until at last, in one gasping leap, he launched himself and landed on the solitary, the solidarity of the shore. And as he began to take his step, his next step, he heard a cry of terror from behind him and he looked around. 
and the soldier who had been chasing him had fallen through and was clutching the ice for his life. No one was near to help the soldier but Dirk. But the soldier was his enemy. What would you do? The historian tells us that Dirk went back, picking his way over the cracking ice, rescued his enemy and brought him to safety. That's the heart of the matter, isn't it? That's the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Stephen, of Abraham, of David. How about you? Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the goodness, the grace of God that gives us a love that is humanly impossible. We can't love like this and we know it. And so how grateful we are that Romans 5 tells us the love of Christ is shared abroad in our hearts. If it weren't that you gave us this love, we could never love in this way. Help us to love in the spirit, to love with a love that is your love, loving through us. When we come to those moments when we would consider an enemy an enemy, when we would lash against them, may we at that moment stop and beseech the Spirit of God to fill us with love, that we may love as you love us. And may we be known in this world as they who love. And by your love, by our love, may the world know we belong to you. So grateful are we, Father, for what you've taught us and for what awaits us in the majesty of the remaining passage. We pray that this podcast will be a life-changing one for us as we learn to love and to stand in this evil day. In Christ's name, Amen.